There, in the example of Abel, we see where the life of faith begins at conversion, namely, with the conscience being awakened to a consciousness of our lost condition with the soul, making a complete surrender to God, and with the heart resting upon the perfect satisfaction made by Christ our surety. That which is chiefly emphasized there is faith in the blood. But placing his faith in the blood of Christ is not all that is done by a sinner when he passes from death unto life. The second section of Hebrews 11 commences at verse 8, where we have set before us another aspect of conversion, or the starting point of the life of faith. Conversion is the reflex action or effect from a soul which has received an effectual call from God. This is illustrated by the case of Abraham, who was originally an idolater, as we all were in our unregenerate state. The Lord of glory appeared unto him, quickened him into newness of life, delivered him from his former manner of existence, and gave him the promise of a future inheritance. The response of Abraham was radical and revolutionary. He set aside his natural inclinations, crucified his fleshly affections, and entered upon an entirely new path. That which is central in his case was implicit obedience, the setting aside of his own will and the becoming completely subject to the will of God. But even that is not all that is done by the sinner when he passes from death unto life. The case of Moses brings before us yet another side of conversion or the beginning of the life of faith, a side which is sadly ignored in most of the evangelism of our day. It describes a leading characteristic of saving faith which few professing Christians now hear, still less know anything about. It shows us that saving faith does something more than believe or accept Christ as a personal Savior. It exhibits faith as a definite decision of the mind, as an act of the will, as a personal and studied choice. It reveals the fundamental fact that saving faith includes, yea, begins with a deliberate renunciation or turning away from all that is opposed to God, a determination to utterly deny self and an electing to submit unto whatever trials may be incident to a life of piety. It shows us that a saving faith causes its possessor to turn away from godless companions and henceforth to seek fellowship with the despised saints of God. There is much more involved in the act of saving faith than is generally supposed. Thomas Manton in 1660 wrote, We mistake it if we think it only to be a strong confidence. It is so indeed, but there are other things also. It is such an appreciative esteem of our Christ and his benefits that all other things are lessened in our opinion, estimation, and affection. The nature of faith is set forth by the Apostle when he saith, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and 
I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Philippians 3 verses 7 to 10 And therefore, true faith makes us dead to the world and all the interests and honors thereof, and is to be known not so much by our confidence as by our mortification and weanedness when we carry all our comforts in our hands as ready to part with them if the Lord called us to leave them. End of quote. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25. Here we see the nature and influence of a saving faith. Two things are to be particularly noted. In it, there is an act of relinquishment and an act of embracing. In conversion, there is a turning from and also a turning unto. Hence, before the sinner is invited to return unto the Lord, he is first bidden to forsake his way. Yes, his way, having his own way. So too we are called on to repent first and then be converted, that our sins may be blotted out. Acts 3.19 If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Matthew 16.24 What is meant by the denying of self? This the abridging ourselves of those things which are pleasing to the flesh. There are three things which are chiefly prized by the natural man, life, wealth, and honor, and so in the verses which immediately follow. Christ propounded three maxims to counter them. First, he says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16.25 That is, he who thinks first and foremost of his own life, whose great aim is to minister unto number one, shall perish. Second, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Verse 26, showing us, the comparative worthlessness of earthly riches. Third, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verse 27, that is the honor we should seek. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Hebrews 11:24. Here was a notable case of self-denial. Moses deliberately 
renounced the privileges and pleasures of a royal palace. It was not that he was now disowned and cast out by the woman who had adopted him, but that he voluntarily relinquished a position of affluence and ease, disdaining both its wealth and dignities. Nor was this the rash impulse of an inexperienced youth, but the studied decision of one who had now reached the age of forty. Acts 7.23 The disciples said, We have forsaken all and followed thee. Matthew 19.27 There all was a net and fishing smack, but Moses abandoned a principality. The denying of self is absolutely essential, and where it exists not, grace is absent. The first article in the covenant is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He must have the preeminence in our hearts and lives. God has not the glory of God unless we honor him thus. Now God does not have the uppermost place in our hearts until his favor be esteemed above all things and until we dread above everything the offending of him. As long as we can break with God in order to preserve any worldly interests of ours, we prefer that interest above God. If we are content to offend God rather than displease our friends or relatives, then we are greatly deceived if we regard ourselves as genuine Christians. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10.37 Thomas Manton said, Faith is a grace that will teach a man to openly renounce all worldly honors, advantages and preferments with the advantage annexed thereto. When God calls us from them, we cannot enjoy them with a good conscience. Unquote. We are often put to the test of having to choose between God and things, duty and pleasure, heeding our conscience or gratifying the flesh. The presence and vigor of faith is to be proved by our self-denial. It is easy to speak contemptuously of the world and earthly things, but what is my first care? Is it to seek God or temporal prosperity, to please Him or self? If I am hankering after an increase in wages or a better position, and am fretful because of disappointment, it is a sure proof that a worldly spirit governs me. What is my chief delight? Earthly riches, honors, comforts, or communion with God? Can I truly say, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand? Psalm 84.10 Thomas Scott announced, All believers are not called to make the same sacrifices or to endure the same trials for righteousness' sake nor have all the same measure of faith. Yet without some experience and consciousness of this kind, we are not warranted to conclude that we are of Moses' religion, for a common walking stick more resembles Aaron's fruitful rod than the faith of many modern professors of evangelical truth 
does the self-denying faith of Moses or Abraham. End of quote. The faith of God's elect is a faith which overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4, and not one which suffers its possessor to be overcome. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, Galatians 5.24, not ought to, but have done so, in some real measure at least. The great refusal of Moses consisted in a firm resolution of mind not to remain in that state wherein he had been brought up. This was not attained, we may be sure, without a hard fight, without the exercise of faith in prayer and trust in God. He knew full well all that his decision involved, yet by grace made it unhesitatingly. His resolution was made known not by a formal avowal, but by deeds, for actions ever speak louder than words. There is no hint in the sacred record that Moses verbally acquainted his foster mother with his decision, but his converse with his brethren, Exodus 2.11 and so forth, revealed where his heart was and identified him with their religion and covenant. Ah, dear reader, it is one thing to talk well about the things of God, but it is quite another to walk accordingly as it is one thing to pen articles and deliver sermons, and quite another to practice what we preach. Not only was Moses' renunciation of his favored position a grand triumph over the lust of the flesh, but it was also a notable victory over carnal reason. First of all, his action would seem to indicate the height of ingratitude against his foster mother. Pharaoh's daughter had spared his life as an infant, brought him into her own home, reared him as her son, and had him educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. For him to turn his back upon her now would appear as though he was devoid of appreciation. So little is the natural man able to understand the motives which regulate the workings of faith. The truth is, that the commandments of the second table are binding upon us no further than our compliance with them is agreeable to our obedience unto the commandments of the first table. The saint is neither to accept favors from the world, nor to express gratitude for the same, if such be contrary to the fear of God and the maintenance of a good conscience. We are never to be dutiful to man at the expense of being undutiful to God. All relations must give way before preserving a clear conscience toward Him. His rights are paramount and must be recognized and responded to, no matter how much the doing so may clash with our seeming obligations unto our fellows. A friend or kinsman may be entertaining me in his home and show me much kindness through the week. But that will not justify or require me to join him on a picnic or frolic on the Sabbath day. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, 
he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14.26 The language of the Christian whatever to be, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Luke 2 verse 49 To enjoy worldly honors is not evil in itself, for good men have lived in bad courts. Daniel is a clear case in point. Most of his life was spent in high civic office. When divine providence has given worldly riches or worldly prestige to us, they are to be entertained and enjoyed, yet with a holy jealousy and prayerful watchfulness that we be not puffed up by them, remembering that better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 16, verse 19. But such things are to be renounced when they are sinful in themselves, or when they cannot be retained with a clear conscience. Against his conscience, Pilate preferred to condemn Christ than to lose Caesar's friendship, and stands before us in holy writ as a lasting warning. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26:41. Again, not only did Moses' great refusal seem like gross ingratitude unto her who had adopted him, but it also looked like flying in the face of providence. It was God who had placed him where he was. Why then should he forsake such an advantageous position? Had Moses leaned unto his own understanding and listened to the dictates of carnal reason, he had found many pretexts for remaining where he was. Why not stay there and seek to reform Egypt? Why not use his great influence with the king on behalf of the oppressed Hebrews? Had he remained in the court of Pharaoh, he would escape much affliction, yes, and this too, the recompense of the reward. Ah, my reader, unbelief is very fertile, argues very plausibly, and can suggest many logical reasons why we should not practice self-denial. What was it then which prompted Moses to make this noble sacrifice? A patriotic impulse? A fanatical love for his brethren? No, he was guided neither by reason nor sentiment, it was by faith that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was the clinging of his heart to the divine promise, the apprehension of things not seen by the outward eye, the confident expectation of future reward. Ah, it is faith which imparts to the heart a true estimate of things, which views objects in their real light, and which discerns the comparative worthlessness of what the poor worldling prizes so highly, and through his mad quest after which he loses his soul. Faith views the eternity to come, and when faith is in healthy exercise, its possessor finds it easy to relinquish the bubbles of time and sense. Then it is the saint exclaims, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. 
He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Psalm 39.6 What a truly remarkable thing that one in Egypt's court should have such a faith. Moses had been brought up in a heathen palace where there was no knowledge of the true God, yea, nothing but idolatry, wantonness, and profanity. Yes, some of Christ's sheep are situated in queer and unexpected places. Nevertheless, the shepherd seeks them out and either delivers them from or sustains them in it. The wife of Herod's steward, Luke 8, 3. The saints in Nero's household, Philippians 4.22, are notable examples. What illustrations are these of The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2 However his enemies may rage, seek to blot out his name and root out his kingdom. Christ shall preserve a remnant according to the election of grace even where Satan's seat is. Revelation 2, verse 13 Someone may object, but Joseph had faith as well as Moses, yet he did not leave the court, but continued there till his death. Circumstances alter cases. Their occasions and conditions were not alike. Thomas Manton said, God raised up Joseph to feed his people in Egypt. Therefore his abode in the court was necessary under kings that favored them. But Moses was called not to feed his people in Egypt, but to lead them out of Egypt. And the king of Egypt was now become their enemy, and kept them under bitter bondage. To remain in an idolatrous court of a pagan prince is one thing, but to remain in a persecuting court where he must be accessory to their persecutions is another thing. End of quote. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11.25 This gives us the positive side of Moses' glorious decision. There is both a negative and a positive side to faith. First, a refusing and then a choosing, and that order is unchanging. There must be a ceasing to do evil before there can be a learning to do well. Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. There must be a hating the evil before there is a loving the good. Amos 5:15. There must be a confessing and forsaking of sin before there is mercy. Proverbs 28.13 The prodigal must leave the far country before he can go to the Father. Luke 15 The sinner must abandon his idols before he can take up the cross and follow Christ. Mark 10.21 There must be a turning to God from idols before there can be a serving the living and true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 The heart must turn its back upon the world before it can receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Adolf Sapphire said, Moses gave up the world and ambition had the prospect of honor and greatness 
The culture of the most civilized state was fascinating to the mind. Treasure and wealth held up potent allurement. And all this, and does it not comprise all that is in the world, and in its most attractive and elevated manner, Moses gave up. And on the other side, what awaited him? To join a downtrodden nation of slaves, whose only riches were the promises of the invisible God. Unquote. A man is known by his choice. Do you do evil for a little profit? Do you avoid duty because of some trifling inconvenience? Are you turned out of the way because of reproach? Moses preferred to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a brief season. Do you? He judged it the greatest misery of all to live in sin. Do you? Here is an important test which gives you greater grief, sin or bodily affliction. Which troubles you the more, suffering loss in the world or displeasing God? There are thousands of professing Christians who complain of their physical aches and pains, but how rarely do we hear any groaning over the body of sin and death. When you are afflicted in the body, which is your dominant desire, to be freed from the suffering or for God to sanctify the suffering unto the good of your soul? Ah, my reader, what real and supernatural difference is there between you and the moral worldling? Is it only in your creed what you believe with the intellect? The demons believe. Yes, it is our refusal and our choice which identifies us, which makes it manifest whether we are children of the devil or children of God. It is the property of a gracious heart to prefer the greatest suffering, physical, mental, or social, to the least sin. And when sin is committed, it is repudiated, sorrowed over, confessed and forsaken. When suffering is inflicted upon saints by persecutors, the offense is done unto us. But sin is committed against God. Sin separates from God. Isaiah 59, 2. Suffering drives the Christian nearer to God. Affliction only affects the body. Sin injures the soul. Affliction is from God. Hebrews 12:11. But sin is from the devil. But not save a real spiritual supernatural faith will prefer suffering affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. None of the exemplifications of the importance of believing brought forth by the Apostle is better fitted to serve his purpose than that which we have been considering. The Hebrew Christians were called on to part with an honor which they were accustomed to value above all other dignities. They were excommunicated by their unbelieving brethren and denied the name of true children of Abraham. Their unbelieving countrymen were enjoying wealth and honor. The little flock they were called on to join 
was suffering affliction and reproach. Now, how is this to be done? Look at Moses. Believe as Moses believed and you will find it easy to judge, choose and act as Moses did. If you believe what Christ has plainly revealed, that it is his Father's good pleasure to give his little flock after passing through much tribulation the kingdom, if you are persuaded that according to his declaration wrath is coming to the uttermost on their oppressors, you will not hesitate to separate yourselves completely from your unbelieving countrymen. John Brown wrote, The practical bearing of the passage is not confined to the Hebrew converts or to the Christians of the primitive age. In every country and in every age, Jesus proclaims, If any man would be my disciple, he must deny himself, he must take up the cross and follow me. The power of the present world can only be put down by the power of the world to come. And as it is through sense that the first power operates on our minds, it is through faith alone that the second power can operate on our minds. Some find it impossible to make sacrifices Christianity requires because they have no faith. They must be made, otherwise our Christianity is but a name, our faith is but a pretense, and our hope a delusion. End of quote. Chapter 17 The Faith of Moses, Part 2 Hebrews 11, 25-26 Again we quote John Owen, The person here instanced as one that lived by faith is Moses, and an eminent instance it is to his purpose, especially in his dealing with the Hebrews, and that on sundry accounts. First, of his person. None was ever in the old world more signalized by providence in his birth, education, and action than he was. Hence, his renown was both then and in all ages after very great in the world. The report and estimation of his acts and wisdom were famous among all the nations of the earth. Yet this person lived and acted and did all his works by faith. Second, of his great work, which was the typical redemption of the church. The work it was, great in itself, so God expresseth it to be, and such as was never wrought in the earth before. Deuteronomy 4.32-34 Yet greater in the typical respect which it had to his eternal redemption of the church by Jesus Christ. Third, on the account of his office, he was the lawgiver, whence it is manifest that the law is not opposite to faith, seeing the lawgiver himself live thereby. End of quote. Each example of faith supplied by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11 presents a distinctive feature or fruit of that spiritual grace. The faith which is here described is saving faith, without which no man is accepted by God. See verse 6. It is true that all Christians are not given the same measure of faith, 
nor do all of them manifest it in the same manner. All flowers are not of the same hue, nor are they equally fragrant, yet every variety differs radically from weeds. Not every saint is called upon to build an ark, offer up his son in sacrifice, or forsake a palace. Nevertheless, there is that in the heart and life of every regenerate soul which plainly distinguishes him from those who are dead in trespasses and sins, and which clearly bears the mark of the supernatural. There is that in him which mere nature does not and cannot bring forth. While it be true that very few Christians are called upon to leave a palace, yet everyone who would become a Christian is required to forsake the world not physically, but morally. God does not bid us become hermits or enter a convent or monastery. That is only the devil's perversion of the truth of separation. But he does insist that the sinner must cast away the idols of the world, turn from its vain pleasures, cease walking in its evil ways, and set his affections upon things above. Scripture is unmistakably plain upon this point, declaring, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4 verse 4 That which was adumbrated by Moses in our present passage was the heart's renunciation of a vain and perishing world and giving God his true place in the affections. In chapter 16, we saw how Moses voluntarily relinquished his position of a nobleman in Pharaoh's court, and preferred to have fellowship with the despised and suffering people of God. In this, he was a blessed type of him who was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, who descended from the glory of heaven and was born in a manger, who laid aside his robes of majesty and took upon him the form of a servant. And my reader, his people, are predestinated to be conformed to his image. Romans 8.29 He has left them an example, and there is no other route to heaven but by following his steps. See John 10 verse 4 There is a real and practical oneness between the head and the members of his mystical body, and that practical oneness consists in self-sacrifice. Unless the spirit of self-sacrifice rules my heart, I am no Christian. The way to heaven is a narrow one, and the entrance to it is straight, and few there be that find it. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 Because that way is narrow, opposed to all the inclinations of flesh and blood, Christ bids us to sit down and count the cost. Luke 14.31, before we start out. The cost is far too high for all who have never had a miracle of grace wrought within them, for it includes the cutting off of a right hand and the plucking out of a right eye. Matthew 5.29 and 30. That is why 1 Peter 4 verse 18 asks, If the righteous scarcely be saved, or with difficulty be saved, 
where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Few indeed are, like Moses, willing to pay the cost. Alas, the vast majority, even in Christendom, are like Esau. Hebrews 12.16 Or the Gadarenes, Mark 5.14 and 15 They prefer to indulge the flesh rather than deny it. The difficulty of salvation, or the straightness of the gate, and the narrowness of the way which leadeth unto life, was strikingly prefigured by the alluring temptations and carnal obstacles which had to be overcome by Moses. As we pointed out in chapter 16, his noble decision not only involved the leaving of Pharaoh's palace, the apparent ingratitude toward his foster mother, the ignoring of the precedents set up by Joseph, but it also meant the throwing in his lot with a despised people, enduring all the discomforts and hardships of their wilderness wanderings, and the bringing down upon his head not only the contempt of his former associates, but having to endure the murmurings and criticisms of the Hebrews themselves. Ah, my reader, such a choice as Moses made was altogether contrary to flesh and blood, and can be accounted for only on the ground that a miracle of divine grace had been wrought within him. As our Lord declared, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19.26 From what has been said here, is it not unmistakably evident that as great a distance as that which separates heaven from earth divides scriptural conversion from that which goes under the name of conversion in the vast majority of the so-called churches today. A genuine and saving conversion is a radical and revolutionary experience. It is vastly more than the taking up of a sound creed, believing what the Bible says about Christ, or joining some religious assembly. It is something which strikes down to the very roots of a man's being, causing him to make an unreserved surrender of himself to the claims of God, henceforth seeking to please and glorify Him. This issues necessarily in a complete break from the world and the former manner of life. In other words, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Second Corinthians 5 or 17 By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Hebrews 11.24 It is the first two words of this verse which supply an adequate explanation of the noble conduct of Moses here. A God-given faith is occupied with something better than the things of sight and sense, and therefore does it discern clearly the utter vanity of worldly greatness and honor. Faith has to do with God, and when the mind be truly stayed upon Him, neither the riches nor the pleasures of earth can attract, still less enthrall. Faith relies upon and is obedient unto a personal revelation from on high. For faith cometh by hearing, 
and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17. Moses had heard. Moses believed. Moses acted on what he had heard from God. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11.25 Yes, each of us has to choose between life and death. Deuteronomy 30.15 Between sin and holiness, between the world and Christ, between fellowship with the children of God and friendship with the children of the devil. When Moses took the part of an Israelite against an Egyptian, Exodus 2, he declared plainly that he preferred the former to the latter, that the promises of God meant far more to him than the fame or luxury of an earthly court. Yet, at that time, the seed of Abraham were in an exceedingly low state. Nevertheless, Moses knew that the promises which God had made unto the patriarch could not fail. That was faith indeed to willingly forego the attractive prospects which lay before him in the land of the Nile and deliberately prefer a path of hardship. What he had heard from God was to him so grand, so great, so glorious that after thoughtfully balancing the one over against the other, Moses rejected material aggrandizement for spiritual riches. He considered it to be a far higher honor to be a child of Abraham than to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He might have reasoned that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush and have made the most of his present opportunity, rather than have set his heart on an unseen future. But the Spirit triumphed over the flesh. Oh, how we need to pray for grace to enable us to approve things that are excellent, that we may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Philippians 1 verse 10 It is to be duly noted that Moses elected to suffer affliction with the Hebrews, not because they were his people, but because they were God's people. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, 
in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.